What a great example of the, the community of faith. Everybody going in different directions and somehow there's a unified sound that comes out of that. That, <laughs> that was really beautiful. Tom, thank you. That was a fantastic prayer, brother. That uh, really focuses on things that matter to each one of us. So good to be with you. I love being inside the community of the United Methodists. They have been the most supportive denomination across the board, taking a lot of arrows for me. And I think part of it is, is because you have a history that is so grounded inside the Trinity. And, uh, and then you got crazy people like Charles Wesley who, who actually believed in experience too. You know, I come from a modern evangelical background where the Holy Spirit stopped doing stuff in the first century. And uh, yeah, once we had the Bible, we didn't have to trust the Holy Spirit anymore. And uh, so, but that was the world that, was, uh, that framed um, my upbringing. And then on top of that, I was a missionary kid and preacher's kid and firstborn. And, you know, I just had further to go than most people. And um, um, uh, speaking of grandchildren, thank you, Stan. <laughs> we, uh, our second to the youngest right now is uh, Vivian. She's two and a half, and uh, a few months ago, she was playing with uh, Amy, who is, we have six children, four of them are married, so we'll have 12 grandbabies from four by the end of the year. Um, it's pretty good. And then uh, we still have a small town in our future. And, <clears throat> but uh, Amy is playing with Vivian, and they were, uh, they were in her bedroom, and, and Vivian said, let's let's play go to sleep, right? So uh, Josh, Vivian's dad, had made a, a, a bed. It's a crib, but it's also a bed, so the side can come down and stuff like that. So they both crawled up into it, and um, Lexi, Vivian's mom, came in and, you know, pretended it was nighttime and, and put the blankets on them. And, and uh, so there, Amy, who's 29, and... Vivian are both laying down in the, in the bed and the blankets come up and, and then uh, Lexi does the nighttime routine and, and kisses them goodnight. This is the middle of the day, right? And, and, then, and then says, okay, goodnight, walks out the door and Vivian's laying next to Amy and goes, now we whine. <laughs> Mom, I need some water. Mom, it's too hot in here. You, you shut the door. You know, now we whine. <laughs> Amy's just like, what? So she tells Lexi, and it totally changed her relationship with Vivian. <laughs> now we whine. Children are unbelievably astute, you know. And, uh, and I, I lo I've learned more from my grandchildren uh, about what it means to be a child. I... The thing I love about being a grandparent is that hopefully by the time you're one, your kids have beat the snot out of your self-centeredness, right? Because when, when they're your kids, it's still all about you, especially the guys, you know. Um, you're interfering with my life, you know. So this is about me. Am I doing this right? But grandbabies, it's not about you anymore. It's about them. And there is a very different relationship that happens. I love that. The... Um, Growing up the way that I did had, had uh, monumental great sadnesses associated to it and, and an incredible wonder. 
Uh, I was only a year old when we went into the highlands of New Guinea into a tribal culture. So, um, you know, as far as I was concerned, that was normal. Uh, they, the tribal folk, the Dani, raised me. And um, they uh, taught me my first language. Uh, my parents were doing the missionary thing. And um, that means they were really busy. So there was, a, there was a thought back in those days that if you did the work of God, God would take care of the kids. And, um, and, so, and a lot of us got kind, kind of slaughtered on the altar of God's purposes. Um, uh, there's a lot of hurt. Now, the wonder of growing up in a multicultural world is that, that when you go back into stereotypically West environments, you're automatically outside the box, which is really helpful and really difficult because there's the issue of belonging that, that just drives so many third culture kids. It's like, where do I fit? I don't fit now in the tribal culture I grew up and I definitely don't fit in my parents' culture, but I look like them and so I'm supposed to and I'm supposed to understand all the cues and all of this. You, you add to that the issue of belonging piece you add to that some of the devastation that happens along the way. And for me, that included sexual abuse inside the tribal culture before I was five years old. And at six, I was sent to missionary boarding school that was supposed to be safe. And the big boys would come and molest the little boys at night. And, uh, and then on top of that, I had a very angry young father. You know, I didn't know that his father had broken his capacity to be a father before I showed up. I just knew he was angry raging and, and brutal. And so I didn't want anything to do with him. That's why when I got to boarding school when I was six and found out I was white, it was a huge disappointment. It's like, I kind of lost everything at that point. At six, I'm alone, you know. And, um, and that began to set the basis in my life for the shack. That is, the house on the inside that people help us build. And there's a lot of us that we didn't get good help. I'm, I'm thrilled when I hear stories of people who are raised by love and affection and encouragement and adventure and were allowed the, uh, to express your curiosity and explore and all. And that's absolutely fantastic. My, my children have way less baggage than I did. I gave them some, I got to say, but they have way less. And as a result... Uh, our oldest is 37, and he is so far ahead, all of our kids are so far ahead of where I was at their age, just in terms of their ability to respond, how they see things, how they understand life, the centrality of Jesus in their relationships, way ahead of where I was. And, uh, and I'm grateful every day about that. But it took me a long time to work through the stuff, because, you know, what you do is if you've got a life that is embedded with shame to begin with, all you do is try to cover it up. You can see that right from Genesis. You don't want relationship. You don't want to be exposed, so you go hide somewhere. And then everything becomes about covering up. You know, when God comes to the two who are hiding up in the tree, that's what the Hebrew says, by the way. They weren't in the bushes. They were in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they've now determined, you know, that God is not good. Um, Adam determined it outright. She was deceived into thinking that. And um, when God comes and says, who told you you were naked? You ever stop and think like, 
what the options are here. <laughs> did you tell each other you were naked? Did, you know, did the snake tell you you were naked? The snake's already naked. Why would he care? Right? So, like, what's God saying? God's saying, I told you. Who told you you were naked? I did. You're supposed to be naked and not ashamed. You're supposed to live without shame. You're supposed to live uncovered, open. This is why secrets are devastating. This is why the work of the Holy Spirit is to expose, not to embarrass. But if you're all covered up and you've held on to your secrets and your hidden things, how do you come to healing and hold on to that darkness? The only way is that God has to find a way into that space without hurting you more, into that darkness. And a lot of times, we're so used to our prisons, we put the word sanctuary on them or home. And so what does God do? He climbs into the prisons with us. He submits to our darkness in order to, to be the light that frees us from them. But he doesn't force us out of there. He just is with us until we're, we get to the place where we're willing to let go of the very things that we thought were keeping us alive, like holding on to our secrets. Secrets kill us. We are as sick as the secrets we keep. So in my relationship with my dad, which was very difficult, and then with the abuse stuff, I just buried it all, and it took years. My concepts of God were all messed up, because you put abuse and wrap it inside religious language, and it sticks you so deep, it's really hard to get out of it. And it, to use a phrase, it took me 50 years to wipe the face of my father off the face of God. Right? Because he was like, my theology said that God the Father was like my dad, who was willing to beat his own son to be right with somebody else. And thankfully, Jesus came to save me from God the Father. Yes, that was my theology, right? It was God the Father. He was different than Jesus. They are like, you may, you may talk Trinity, but you're really, God the Father is the big one. He's the dark one that needs to be appeased and sacrificed to. Somehow Jesus is able to become sin for us, but God can't even look on it. That's our mentality. That's our concept of God. And you start with a God that you can't run to who's not safe. Where do you go? And, and you're hoping that Jesus covers you so in such a way that God doesn't really know how worthless you are. That's our, that's our theology, the one I grew up with. And it devastated me most of my life. It took a lot of work and a lot of exposure. Exposure is not judgment. Expo well, it is in a certain way, but it's not, it's not based in fear, and it's not designed to embarrass you. It's because God loves you. Exposure is a severe mercy. So, I'm a storyteller. I love stories. I think every human being is a story. I think eternity takes so long because we've got to all unwind our stories. I, you know, you're going to find little threads that go through the lives that go around the world and you had no clue. You, you get kind of a nudge to pray for something. You have no idea how that thread then is woven into the purposes of God somewhere in a distant planet especially the Pentecostals who haven't got a clue what they're saying. So I didn't grow up Pentecostal, but, you know, I have a great respect for, for the idea of a clear communication to God that I don't have to understand and squeeze into my 
my mental limitations. I think that's pretty profound. So, um, so story is great. Um, um, I I wrote the shack because I've always written stuff, and but I never thought about being a published author. It was never on the radar, never in the bucket list. I wasn't trying to become a published author. I was trying to do like the Bible says and submit to my wife. And um, <laughs> why are you laughing? She told me it says that. No. No, it does. It says that. It says, submit one to another, and she's one of the others. <laughs> Duh. Right? So, so Kim had been saying, you know, someday as a gift for our children, would you write something that puts in one place how you think, because you think outside the box. And, um, and later, when, the, when it actually got put in print, she said, you know, I was thinking like four to six pages. And... Uh, <laughs> So, so the year I turned 50, I finally felt healthy enough to write this. And I'd written poetry and songs and short stories, but I'd never written like a book. So on the train, mostly on the train, to one of my three jobs, I had 40 minutes each way to the main job, and I wrote a story for my kids called The Shack. And I got it done, made 15 copies at Office Depot in Gresham, Oregon. A little spiral-bound thing with a plastic cover, you know. And um, six went to the kids for Christmas, and uh, uh, Kim got a copy, and the extras I just gave to my friends, and I went back to work. Those 15 copies did everything I ever wanted that book to do. Everything. And it was like, that's so cool. But my friend, you know, you give your kids a book for Christmas, and it's like, thanks, Dad. <laughs> a book. Like... We'll get right on that, yeah. But my friends started reading it immediately, and they started giving it to their friends, and that starts this whole chain reaction. My kids eventually did read it. Even Kim eventually read it, and, uh, and, and they loved it. But um, my friends started giving it away. It starts this chain reaction that is just this God's great sense of humor and proof that he can still speak through Balaam's ass. So that's an Old Testament reference. Don't get all upset. It's, it's in your Bible, you can read it. Look up Balaam's ass, or donkey, depending on the translator. But, um, but it's there. So, um, but the, the idea is, I'm working three jobs. I'm shipping out stuff, you know, for a circuit board manufacturing company. I'm doing janitorial, so I'm cleaning toilets. And, and I was a hotel night clerk. And, and, uh, and we're living in 900 square foot of usable space, a little house on the corner of 12th Street in Gresham, rental. And, and joy had dropped on us like a ton of bricks, and we had nothing. It was a really difficult season in which we learned that the opposite of more is enough. It was one of the, one of the journeys in my 11 years that healed me of, of fears that had dominated my life. And my whole journey, if you wanted to put it into a nutshell, is the movement toward trust. Because I'm a control freak. You know, I'll even create imaginations that don't exist and then try to control the world so that the things that don't exist don't happen. I call it future tripping. You know, I've done every kind of future tripping. I've been to my own funeral a whole bunch of times. I'm the only one who cried. Kind of ticked me off. 
But yeah, I've, my, I've, I've lost everything how many times. I've ended up under in Portland at Burnside Bridge and in the, in the cardboard boxes. Ah, all not real, but like I created these things out of an imagination that was based in fear. Because in those imaginations, if you're a future tripper, which is a, med, it's a mode of control, because when you deal with fear in your life, you've got one of two choices, control or trust. There is no third option here. And to the degree that there is fear in your life, to that degree you don't know yet how much you're loved. That's First John. And so uh, I create these imaginations, and, and that's how I control. And in those imaginations, I never even see God in them. It's not like I have this fear-based imagination, and then I look around inside of it and go like, wait, wait, there's Jesus right there. What am I worried about? I don't do that. He's not there. You know why? Because God doesn't live in anything that's not real. He lives in you, and he lives inside this day, and we're off future tripping. We don't even see what's right in front of us, right? We're not present. We don't know that we're surrounded by enough so that our fears are telling us we need more, and we're not present to see the activity of God right in front of us. So, I write this little story. It becomes this international phenomenon. I mean, it's just like nobody saw this coming. I mean, the 26 publishers who turned it down didn't see it coming, which didn't bother me, by the way, because I never expected it to be anything anyway. 15 copies had already done everything I wanted it to do. So the whole chain reaction becomes God's great sense of humor. And it turns out well, the, 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 the faith-based publishers turned it down because it was too edgy. The secular publishers turned it down because it had too much Jesus in it. So I got stuck between edgy and Jesus. You know what I found out? There are millions of people stuck between edgy and Jesus. And so, you know, I write a story for my kids that lands right into that space, and it's a human story with real losses and real questions. So I start getting the stories back on how this little book has landed in the middle of people's great sadnesses. I want to tell you one. It's kind of a, I kind of go rabbit trail stuff. Do you just understand? I just have to trust the Holy Spirit to always bring it back to something that makes sense for you. <laughs> and uh, um, I'm used to this now. Because I never planned. I have no idea we were talking about this this morning when I stood up. Not a clue. Okay? So here we go. Hey, don't confuse me with someone who actually knows what they're doing. <laughs> right? So... Um, I have a friend named Tony, Tony Woodall. He's a big, tall guy. He was a pastor, Church of Christ, or Brethren, or something, very conservative, for 40 years. And Tony loves me. I mean, loves me as a human being. And part of the reason is, is because I saved his son's life. Now, there is something about the way, if somebody treats you well, and, and, and loves on you, you're very grateful. But if they love your child well, that person is yours forever. There is something about how this works that if you care for the ones that I care for, I'm yours forever, right? So I write this little book, 
And I meet Tony because I'm down at a men's thing down in um, Jackson, Mississippi with Baxter Kruger, who's a theologian. He's the one that wrote The Shack Revisited. And he's, got, he's a Mississippi theologian who went to Aberdeen, Scotland and studied with the Torrance brothers to learn about the Trinity. And it changed his world. Um, he's a great communicator, a great friend. And there was a guy's thing, so I happened to be there. Tony meets me there, and we had some conversations and things. Uh, Tony has a son who is in his 20s, and he's sort of like a millennial born in the wrong century. He should have been born in the 60s. He's kind of a very free spirit, kind of like, and for example, his son, had, there was an uh, exotic pet store in Nashville, in Murfreesboro, and, um, you know, with all these animals and snakes and things, parrots and cockatoos and all this stuff from other places. And, and he had a friend who worked there. Um, and Tony's son got a little perturbed about the fact that all these animals were in lockup. So he snuck in one night, broke in, and he freed all the exotic pets into Murfreesboro. So you would have, you know, lizards and snakes and cockatoos and flying around Nashville. And it turns out that it's a felony. So he got sentenced to 18 months in federal prison for releasing the pets. And uh, he went into a really dark time. He's a very sensitive soul. He's an artist. He didn't even know he was an artist until he was in prison and he started doing these drawings with um, uh, pencil and Skittle spit, you know, using Skittles for colors. And they're unbelievably beautiful. He would just fold, crinkle and unfold and fold up uh, like envelopes and then use that as the canvas on which he would do his drawings. Well, he'd gone into a depression. And um, so when Tony is leaving Mississippi, he gets a call from his son who is now out of prison. And his, his son calls him and he says, so dad, what have you been doing? He says, well, I was down in Jackson, Mississippi. I was, I, I was meeting with uh, Baxter Kruger but he says, you know, I met an, a guy, an author named Paul Young. And his son begins, he bursts into tears on the phone. And Tony's like, what? And his son says, Dad, I haven't told you, but the day I bought the gun to kill myself, someone handed me a copy of the shack. It saved my life. Well, you can understand that after that, Tony loves me because I wrote something that ended up in his son's life and saved it, right? So Tony uh, lives in Murfreesboro, Nashville area, and he has a friend um, named Bill. And Bill works at the university. And um, Bill, his life was a wreck. So he decided... Well, he didn't decide. Somebody came and told him because he was depressed and he was, uh, really, his world was falling apart and, and had been for a while. And somebody came and said to him, Bill, you know what? Why don't you do something different? Because this is not working for you. Why don't you, why don't you, instead of focusing on yourself all the time, do something for somebody else? Right? Just shift your focus a little bit. And so he looked around to find out who do I identify the most with right now and he decided it was the guys on death row. So he goes in to visit somebody on death row and meets Terry King, who has been on death row for 33 years. And Bill's telling me about this, and he says, you know, 
He says, a lot of people think that the reason Jesus asked you to go visit the poor and those in prison is so that you can help them. He says, that's not true at all. You go there so that it can change you. Right? Because there is a simplicity and an authenticity and an honesty for those who are in prison where things are a lot clearer and simpler and real. And a lot of us who live in this convoluted, complicated world, when we get exposed to simplicity, it changes us. So Bill goes in to see Terry. Terry's on death row. Bill finds out from Tony that I'm coming to Nashville to speak to a bunch of millennials, like 600 of them on Johnny Cash's old farmhouse ranch thing. And um, so he says to Tony, do you think Paul would come visit Terry? Because the shack has been going through death row and it is the single biggest influencer in Terry King's life on death row. And Tony says, sure he will. And then he calls me, right? So that's because he knows me. And it's like, are you kidding? I would love to do this. So we set it up, and uh, we go into death row in Tennessee to visit Terry King. And we meet a friend of Terry's uh, who's been on death row for 30 years. Um, and uh, in fact, the day, the day before I go to see Terry, he has his final appeal and, and lost it. So he is now waiting for the sentence, the date for his execution. But I go in to see him the day after this. I didn't know any, about any of that until I get there. We spent about two and a half hours together. And, and Terry and his friend have been on death row long enough that they have a lot of privileges. So we're in a little room. We can hug and talk and they can show me stuff and... We cried a lot, and you know, it was just fantastic. And so, um, and I'm thinking as I'm talking to these two guys, I talk to a lot of people, and these are the two of the freest human beings I've ever been around. And Terry says to me, I mean, literally, we'd be sitting next to each other, and he'd start telling me something, and he'd start to cry. And he'd reach over, and he'd touch me, and he'd go like, I just can't believe you're here. And... He says, let me tell you something. He said, I never owned what I had done until I read the shack. And he said, here's what happened. It was chapter 11, Sophia in the cave. And in that chapter, Mackenzie has to face Sophia. And Sophia, the wisdom of God, and the word in the Greek for wisdom is Sophia, so just, that's where I got it, right out of Proverbs 8, you know. And uh, the woman who in the middle of the night cries in the street saying, wake up, you know, you're lost in all your darkness, Sophia. And so in the cave, there's a confrontation, and, and Mackenzie is invited to sit in the seat of judgment as the judge. And the exposure in part in that chapter is that we do this. We judge the goodness of God. We judge our neighbor. We, judge, we put people in categories and boxes. Rather than take the risk of relationship, we just annihilate the box. And, and he's telling me, Terry, he's telling me, he says, I read chapter 11 
and it rips me apart so deeply, I'm literally on the floor of my cell, crawling on the floor of my cell, trying to get out of my own skin. That was the encounter. And you know what the issue was? This is what Terry says. The reason that I didn't own what I had done to one of God's precious children all those years ago is because I judged pedophiles. I'm on death row. And there's pedophiles on death row. And at least I'm better than them. And my judgment of someone else prevented me from owning my own stuff. And I suddenly realized, boom, in this scene, what I had done. And it absolutely broke me. How much of our lives we spend in judgment of the other so that we don't have to deal with the stuff that's in our own shack. And Terry says, he says, there are pedophiles here that in 30 years have never had one visitor. And now I try to write letters and see if there's someone who will come and visit them. Right? Because they're human beings. And they're broken in such a way that they've gotten caught. And what we've done as a community of humanity is to isolate them. What? For their own good? For our own good. And we've lost the capacity to relate to them as human beings. I'm sitting there talking to these two guys and, and Terry's friend says, he says, you know, you know we, what we think about and dream about, other than talking about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and, and, uh, and I told them about living inside the grace of only one day, which intersected with where Terry had just gotten his potential death sentence. And, and he's going like, this is exactly today what I needed to hear or talk about. But he says, here's what we talk about. What, is, what must it be like to step on grass? See, we've for 33 years stepped on concrete, tile, and rocks. He said, we look at it. We can see it out in the yard and stuff. We can see it. But can you imagine stepping on something that just springs back? He says, one night, he says, uh, the, we were out in the yard, just gravel, one evening, and the guards forgot about us. And he says, I, I asked Terry, do you think we should tell them? And Terry says, nah, they'll figure it out. And we got to be outside when the stars came out. First time in decades. And it was a clear Tennessee night. And suddenly, the stars are out. And we just sat and watched the most beautiful thing that we'd seen in decades. I walk by the stars all the time. I walk by the grass all the time. I'm surrounded by things that I take for granted. There is a simplicity. And I said to Terry, you know that, I, and I told him, you guys are incredibly free. You know that everybody out there is, is in a prison. They just can't see it. And so they're trying to convince themselves it's not real. I have a clock that sits right behind my desk because Terry made it in Death Row's wood workshop, sent it to me at Christmas. A clock. It's made in the image of a shack. It's got little tools that have been handcrafted. 
And Terry sent it to me. Because of my meeting with Terry, he got invited to us. They let him. The warden let him do a Skype conversation with a, a little ladies group in Connecticut that were studying the shack. And he got to call in and tell the story. You know, you, you start to break the walls down and humanize the other. And all of a sudden, Jesus begins to emerge everywhere. This is the beauty of what we are surrounded by. In the midst of our brokenness is a God who will climb into that darkness and begins to transform our stories so that they become icons and monuments of grace. That's the wonder of a God who is good all the time involved in the details of our lives. We're walking out of the prison. And I say to Bill, I want you to know that if if Terry gets his death sentence day and he wants me to be there, I'll be there. We're walking past the building where they execute and Bill says, here's how crazy our justice system is. They have a whole religious ritual they go through when they execute someone, including sterilizing the needles. And they have every piece of modern equipment so that if the person goes into cardiac arrest because the pressure is so high that they can resuscitate them so that they can kill them. See, this is our justice, human justice. God's justice is always about restoration. We have a police force that is now being taught how to be law enforcement instead of protecting and serving. When you protect and serve, you serve and protect the the perpetrator as well as the victim, right? Our movement in terms of the community of faith is to reintroduce our humanity back into the conversation. And to do that, we have to understand that Jesus is at the center of our humanity. Our Imago Dei is not apart from him. The image of God in you and I is not apart from Jesus. That union, you cannot split from the very being and person of Jesus. Why? Because all of creation was created in him. Not anything that has come into being has come into being apart from him. You have never been apart from Jesus. To be apart from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is to lapse into non-being. There is nothing apart from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You think he spun creation outside of himself? No, everything. 1 Corinthians, uh, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1. Everything is by, for, through, and in him. That's why nothing can separate you from the love of God. And part of the gospel is the declaration that you've been included into this love. And now relationally, you can turn toward it or continue to hold your darkness. But let me tell you something about God. This fiery, furious, relentless love who is absolutely filled with affection toward you will never stop while anything that is not of love's kind remains in you. This God is coming for you and always will. And you are in him. John 14, 20. The three things the Holy Spirit will teach you, says Jesus. I'm in the Father, you're in me, and I'm in you. You may not like it. You may not want it. Tough. You're going to have to live with it. And it's going to be a conflict for all the pieces of darkness that you want to hold on to. And love will stand embracing you until you let it.
This is the beauty of a God who is good all the time, involved in the details of our lives, to the praise of his glory. Amen.